Well, good morning. So I don't know about you, but uh, my last week has been very busy. I am married to a nurse, which is awesome. Uh, and it's a nurse that will be working on Christmas, which is a bummer. But uh, because of that, our, our Christmas is now this week, right? So everything kind of got truncated. And so we're doing Christmas this coming Friday. Christmas Eve for us will be this Thursday. And so over the last few days, it's been like events and parties and shopping. And then yesterday was like the all-day wrapping campaign, you know, where you just spend the whole day just wrapping all the presents for all the stuff and everything else. And then in the midst of that, there's life. There's work. There's burdens. There's joys. There's good things and bad things all in there. And so here's what I want us to do today, because you might be in that space too, and you feel some of that pressure. So right now, it's just taking a deep breath and letting it go, because today is meant to be an anchor, right? Every one of these Sundays of Advent is designed to kind of cause us to slow down, to move out of all of this busy hustle bustle, and to go, all right, at the core of this whole story, this whole enterprise of the Christmas season is reflecting on the fact that there was a God that so loved the world, he deposited himself into the world, not as a king or a ruler or a powerful monarch, whatever else, but comes as a lowly servant, comes as a type of slave and freely gives himself, breaks himself open and pours himself out for the world, bringing to us what we needed, things like peace, right? That was the first word of Advent for us. This idea that God comes to bring peace in us and to us so that he might express then his peace through us as a people. Or next we learned about joy, not just happiness, but joy. And that God wants to give in our lives a type of joy that is so robust, so anchored, so full, that the world cannot tear it from us, especially through the circumstances of life. And then today, today is a great one. It's all about hope. And hope is such a needed word, because I know some of us right now, you may not feel a lot of hope. Or you might look at the world and go, how much hope can be found there? But, but this is the reminder that hope does not come by way of our conditions. It becomes uh, something that's manifest in us by way of the presence of our God. And so right now I want to go ahead and pray this morning as we go into our time together. And we kind of just focus on that word, just kind of marinate it in a little bit. And, and kind of be reminded of how hope is truly manifest in our lives. And so right now, if you would pray with me, I would certainly enjoy that. Jesus... I thank you that as we are kind of stirring around this story over and over again from different points of view, looking at the different poles of your arrival in the world, I thank you that in that it reminds us of these core themes. And these words are simple, they're short, hope, peace, joy, love, I mean hardly any letters but so much depth. And I pray that we would know the depth of these things, not just simply by way of how we try to see our conditions in life manifest those things, but rather how your presence in our lives are how that is really accomplished. And so I pray for a unique um, presence of you here this morning, because I know we're all in different spaces. Some of us are having the best time. Some of us are having the worst time. Some of us are somewhere in between. And, and I pray that you would meet us in that space. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness, and we look to your grace to guide us in your good name. Amen. So, as I have been reminded throughout this season, the word Advent simply means arrival or coming or presence. But I think it's always important to remind ourselves of just how um, monstrous that really was. 
this idea of, of all the things a deity could do, right? A God sitting over creation with all power, all authority, and all control. It's amazing that that very God then says, here's how I'm going to do the, the reclamation project. I'm going to come in. I'm going to step down. I'm going to lay myself low for the sake of them. I'm going to come underneath them and lift them up as opposed to demand how they should live. I'm going to come and show them how to live. I'm going to empower them to live. I'm going to transform their lives so that they might live. That is a radical notion that you don't find in any other system but the system that this book shows to us. And so I think it's always important, at least in my mind, to kind of think about the idea that that's what Christmas is really all about. Christmas is about the self-sacrifice in deep love that God has for us and meeting us where we are at. Seeing our problem and stepping into the problem with the solution. Seeing our brokenness and saying, I'm going to come and bind up their wounds. I'm going to be the one that wraps the bandage. I'm going to be the one that sets the bone of their soul. I'm going to be the one that brings them onto healing and onto completion and onto wholeness. And so as we think about the themes of Advent, peace, joy, and then today, hope, we need to think about the fact that what Advent was and what the arrival of Christ was into the world was not simply the arrival of a person or the arrival of God, but God bringing with them this thing we need, this thing called hope. And see, I think it's valuable to understand that when this hope came into the world 2,000 years ago, it came when our hour was darkest. When humanity was so desperately in need of a shift, of a change, of a reorientation, that's when God comes into the world. See, I think this is valuable because, listen, let's be honest. We have it pretty good. We're Americans in the 21st century. We have affluence. We live in one of the more affluent parts of the country. We live in a small town that's unlike most small towns in America. We have wealth and privilege safety and security so when we put together our christmas it's very ideal right we hang the lights and put the bows and the beautiful tree and it's merry and it's bright and we think about our cocoa bars and our fun songs and our good times and we're gonna have movie marathons as a family all this great stuff but you have to understand that the very first christmas and the story that leads up to that first christmas it is anything of our hallmark films our snow globes, or our very picturesque, like, nativity scenes at home. No, the first Christmas and the story leading up to it is a story of brokenness, hurt, pain, shame, hardship, death, destruction, hopelessness. That's really the first Christmas. Now you're like, thanks, Matt, for wrecking Christmas for us all. I get it, right? But see, I think it's really, really important when we think about this very quaint scene of a woman and her husband and a little baby in a manger and everything else, I think it's important to go, wait, that story is set against a backdrop. And it's a backdrop of despair. It is a backdrop of brokenness. It is a backdrop of hatred. It is a backdrop of humanity versus humanity and humanity versus God. That's the backdrop. And it's in that space then that God then says in his love, I will come, I will do, I will heal, I will rescue, I will reintroduce true joy, true peace, true hope, and true love as I magnify it and manifest it in the world. That's the story because again, to understand the good news of the gospel, you have to realize that there was the problem of bad news for that good news to grab hold. 
See, what was going on before God comes into the world and the person to Jesus is that the world wanted change. It always wants change. It doesn't like its current state and wants a new state. But the reality inside of that, because of our problem of sin, is that we don't want to be changed. We just want to have change. But see, God knows our deeper need. And so he is going to step in to give us what we really need and set against the bad news of our invasive brokenness is the good news of his relentless grace that transforms. And I think that's the essence of the arrival, the advent, that he wants to give us what we need. And what we need in part is hope. And that's why God comes to dwell among us. See, one of the things I've been learning more and more about these words of advent is that uh, when you dig them down, you realize that they all exist because where God's presence is, is those very features. And where God's presence is not, uh, we try to get those things, but they're incomplete. They don't hold up. They don't have quite the kind of the molecular structure to hold in place true, lasting, unshakable peace, joy, hope, love. Now, you have to have the presence of God. So the presence of God comes into the whole equation. And I think particular is to this idea of hope. Now, to get into hope, uh, I want to ask you a question. I've asked this question before, so some of you are like, oh, I know this one, so I know it's a trick question. I know the answer, all right? But here's the question. In all of human history, not just in your life, though I'm sure you can name a number of times in your own person where this has been true, but in all of human history, so thousands and thousands of years that we have recorded, when can you think of was the most hopeless time the utter most hopeless season in all of human history. Now, maybe some of you Sunday school kids, you're going to be like, oh, I know what it was. It was when Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. That was the most hopeless time. Or others may say it was when the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt and it was a long holler before they were ever getting out. Maybe that was the most hopeless time. Or maybe you just look at all of the genocide and war and hatred and conflict. And you go, that was the most hopeless time. Maybe for some of you who are like tomorrow night facing the Eagles as a Seahawks fan, that's the most hopeless time. Oh. Now, now, here's the thing. I, I can tell you the most hopeless time in all of human history. It's actually found in the first page of your Bible. It's found in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, that's where you're like, that doesn't fit. Like, I've read my Bible, Matt. In Genesis 1, God creates. And in Genesis 2, it's the man, it's the woman, it's a garden. They're naked, they're unashamed, it's bliss. And I go, right, that is when the world was most hopeless. And here's what I mean by that. They had no notion of hope yet. They had no notion of when things go bad and you want them to be good. Things had only been good. There was no context for hope at that point. Because there's no brokenness at that point. See, I think one of the things that we forget sometimes is the values that we most appreciate and we cleave to exist because the antithesis exists. You know why we love forgiveness? Because we've all failed somebody. You know why we love grace? Because we've all sinned and we need it. See, there's so many things where you need the negative to really appreciate the positive. But back in Eden, before there was any fall, any sin, everything was bliss. Every day, here's the man and the woman, they wake up. What should we do today? Well, first off, we don't have to put on clothes because it's fine that we're naked. So there's no prep. And then we just go and we play in the sun and we hang out with animals. We're all getting along. We work a little bit, but the environment works with us and for us. So everything is bliss. So when they do that on Monday, it's a great day. And they never went to bed on Monday saying, I hope Tuesday's just as good. 
Tuesday was just as good. And Wednesday and Thursday, there was no conflict. There was no pushback. There was no need for hope because their life was hardship-free. But then their hopeless bliss became a hopeless mess in Genesis 3. Now they knew bad days. Now they knew problems. Now they knew hardship. And so in that switch from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, they give up blessing and they absorb cursing. They give up freedom and they absorb shame. They give up contentment and all they have is despair. And so the Bible says their eyes were opened on that day. And their eyes were opened to, wow, life is not going to be good because their hearts were darkened. And they were at odds with one another and they were at odds with God. And so what happens kind of flowing out of Genesis 3 is this new sense of hopelessness that they had never experienced before. I always think about all the new emotions that they had. Like when that happens, like suddenly like, oh, wow, we didn't even know that was in there. It wasn't in there until there was the rebellion. But now they are hopelessly chasing hope. And when you read through the Bible or even look at human history, there's all sorts of ways we try to refabricate and recraft hope for ourselves. It's very broken, very shallow, very empty, but we try. So one way they tried was idols. We're going to kind of create all of these little trinket gods to do what we want them to do. And the whole heart behind that was maybe these gods can rescue us from our practical life hell and give us a new life heaven. And so they chased for that. But the idols never satisfy. They always take more than they will give. They always demand something more than they're going to actually pay out to you. And so we said, maybe it's not idols. Maybe it's just ideals. Certain ideal conditions that are going to kind of make life the way we want it. And so we're going to put our hope in a person or persons. Or we're going to put our hope in a certain structure, a government, a politician, an economic system. You name it, we try it. We're trying to get the perfect conditions to just hone for us and house for us hope. But it just fleets away, just goes away, just evaporates. So he said, okay, well, maybe the problem is we lost Eden. We lost the garden. And if we can get back to a garden, then we'll have hope. And so we started fabricating for ourselves greenhouses for our own personalized gardens. Not the garden of Eden, but the garden of Medan. Perfectly aligned for me is I want it to be exactly... And so again, we began to put our hope in things that were just like a treadmill. This person is my hope. Oh, they let me down. Uh, these finances are going to be my hope. Oh, I lost my job. Oh, uh, this politician's going to be my hope. Oh, they didn't fulfill their promises. Right? You name it. Right? It's just the endless treadmill. And what I love about the Bible is that there's certain parts of it in particular that are brutally honest. It says, you know what, can we just speak openly for a minute? Can we just be really transparent about things? It's why my favorite book of the Bible outside of the, the Gospels is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's from this dude named Solomon, which frankly, wise on paper, stupid in life. I mean, the guy was a reckless fool in what he did. And Ecclesiastes short of, sort of uh, reveals that, where he's like, you know what? I'm rich, I'm powerful, I've got it all at my disposal, and so I tried. I tried to see if life could give us what we most want. And so he's like, I tried money, I tried women, I tried building, I tried wisdom, I tried folly, I was godly, I was ungodly. Put it all out there on the line, took it all for a spin. He goes, and my conclusion is, it is all vanity. It is wasteful. It is a fool's errand to ask this world to give us what we most seek because it's a closed system. It cannot sustain and contribute to the needs that we have in the soul, particular to things like peace and joy and hope. 
And see, I think this comes into something that Paul says in the book of Ephesians, so I bounce into the New Testament. And he's writing to this new group of Jesus followers, but he's reflecting on their old life. And he says something, to me at least, that's intriguing, and I think kind of gives us a sense of kind of why we struggle with hope and where hope is found. So he writes to this church, and he says, remember that you were once separated from Christ. These are Gentile, non-Jewish people just recently coming to faith. He says, you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. And then he says this, having no hope and without God in the world. See, we tend to just read without God in the world, and we don't realize that they're joined. In other words, what he's saying is, you were without hope because you were without God. And where there is then God, by extension, there is going to be hope. See, I think this is valuable because, again, what do we do? We go, no. What we really need for hope is to have the right mindset, the right positivity, or the right set of conditions. And Paul's like, no, that's the problem. We keep thinking that that's going to do it. That keeps not doing it. But rather, what you find is where there is God, there is hope. What you most need, what you finally come to see now, is that your hope is founded in the only one that can do it, the one that injects it from the outside in. The conditions don't dictate it. Our position does. Or maybe to say it a little bit differently, our, 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 our position in relationship to the presence of God. Like the more we're seeking God, the more we want to be like Jesus, the more we're, we're really submitting to the Holy Spirit. Like that's the place where hope can be most expressed. But see, it's interesting to me too because what this also kind of maybe hints at is that uh, the opposite, that absence of hope, that absence of fulfillment, maybe that's actually also a tool of God. Right? In other words, we go, well, I, I don't sense it, and that's the problem. God's like, right, I, I, I want you to feel its absence so you, you know you need something more. You, you crave something deeper. In fact, of this, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. It's kind of cryptic. It's a little weird. But he says this, and he's talking about when Adam and Eve rebel, and the whole thing goes off the rails, and everything is cursed. But he says creation— was subjected to futility, not willingly. It didn't say, hey, go ahead and wreck us today. But God did this in hope. He subjected it in hope. So when everything goes bad in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and we go, oh, this is just nothing but cursing. God's like, no, 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 no. This isn't just punitive. It's restorative. I didn't just subject it in futility and say, done, you suck, we're finished. I'm turning my back on you. He's like, no, I subjected it with hope. There's something deeper behind the motivation of God to do this very thing, right? And I think it's that, that Ecclesiastes living, where when you have at, at your disposal every conceivable thing to give you these sustaining features in life and it doesn't do it and you go, it doesn't work, life doesn't work this way, this stuff doesn't do it for me, God's like, right, I subjected the whole creation to do that, to, to be empty in comparison, to be vain in the pursuit so that you realize you need something more, all those unmet expectations or hopeless hopes, that despair makes you go, oh, Man, there's got to be something more to life. And God's like, right, that's why I did it this way. See, that's what I love about this whole thing. I think those are actually the means of God's grace, right? To get us to broken places so that he re we realize that really he is the hope, he is the solution. Like, I go back to Eden, right, where the mess began. And as they cross that threshold and go against God's best for them, 
again, they're just instantly met with all kinds of problems. They're met with unmet hopes, loss of fulfillment, a life of futility. But I have to say in that space that God was doing that, but with this deeper hope underlying it. And so he's kind of doling out the consequences in Genesis 3. And, and he's like, okay, uh, so for you, serpent, you're, you're going to crawl on the belly, you're, you're, you're going to be in the dust, and there's going to be some stuff for you that's problematic. And then to the woman, he says, you're going to fight with your husband, you're going to fight with your kids. To the man, he's like, you're going to fight with your wife, you're going to fight with your kids, you're going to fight with creation. You're all going to be at odds. So it seems very hopeless, but in the middle of all of that hopelessness, we see the first good news. It's cloaked, it's hidden, it's cryptic, it's buried, but God says this to the serpent who started the whole cascading effect. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now I think in the slides we see three key words, her, offspring, and he. Just three words. But those three words are literally the first gospel. The her is a woman. The offspring is someone that's a he, a son. And while that son is going to be bruised by the serpent in his heel, that same bruised heel will turn and bruise, crush the serpent's head. So it's like this mythological sounding, feeling thing, but in buried and embedded into that is this deeper promise of a thing that's going to happen but it gives us a benchmark of the start of the story that even as genesis 3 closes and they're banished from the presence of god god's promised his presence will be renewed and hope will be renewed as he is to do this unfolding thing somehow eve's offspring son is going to change everything but it's not going to happen fast now, right? You get out of Genesis 3 and you move into Genesis 4 and you see the friction isn't just between husband, wife, and kids, but it's between the kids themselves. And so Cain kills Abel. By the end of Genesis 4, strangers are kind of going after one another. By the time you get to Genesis 6, everybody has violence in their heart all of the time. Then you get to Genesis 10 and 11 and the nations are divided and that's gonna be war and conflict and division and hatred and everything else. And you're like, man, does not seem like hope is gonna spring from the story. But then God comes to the unlikely dude, a dude named Abram and his wife Sarai. And he says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your gods. And I want you to go to a new place where I'm going to do a new thing through you. And he promises Abraham in that time. He says, listen, I'm going to, through your line, bless all the families. So up to that point, the world had been cursed and cursing. And suddenly this word blessing gets injected. I'm going to bless them through you. In particular, I'm going to bless them through your offspring. I want you to remember that word because we saw back in Genesis 3 that through the woman there would be an offspring. Then he comes to Abraham and he's like, through you there's going to be an offspring, same word, that I'm going to use to bless every family, every nation on earth. You're like, sweet. Well, in time, after several years, these two people, Abraham and Sarah is eventually what their names would become. Uh, they have a son. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. I'm in my 50s. My wife's in her 50s. We have grandkids. I cannot imagine having a child at 90 and 100. Like, we can do eight hours solid with the grandkids, right? But around the clock all the time, every day, man. But they're there, and they're in it. And eventually, this little baby, Isaac, grows up into a boy. 
And now it, I'm sure Abraham's like, yes, this is the promise moving forward. And that's in that space where God says, now I want you to take that son, your one and only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And when you read the story, we just did this a couple of months ago. When you read the story, the test is in one part for Abraham, but it's another part for God. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. Like, you're like, wait, God puts Abraham to the test to see if Abraham will be faithful? Like, God says, I've tested you to see that now I know you will do this. So it's a really interesting story, but the tension and the emotion of the story is so crushing for this family, this man, because he loves his son, and he also loves God. And so he takes the son on the mountain, he raises the dagger, and just as he's getting ready to plunge it, God steps in through an angel of the Lord. He says, Abraham, Abraham, wait, stop, don't do it. Don't sacrifice this boy. Don't do this thing. Again, because it was to see would you follow through. But now I know that you truly fear God and have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Right? So we know the story. We understand the story. But then you're like, but, but why did Abraham go through with this? Well, if you punch into the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, it says this weird thing. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. That's why it had been told to him, so shall your offspring be. It's a weird little thing that Paul's bringing up in Romans 4, but what he's trying to say is um, Abraham took those steps and took his son onto the mountain and was willing to do that thing because he hoped against hope. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? I, I don't even know how to fully handle it. Other than I think it's like this benchmark, like there's hope in this world that only takes you so far, but he hoped against that hope, beyond that hope, to a deeper hope that's found only in the presence of God, only in the pleasures of God in our life. Like that's where the hope is found. And so against hope, he hoped that God would fulfill the promise and God's like, okay, here's the deal. He calls from heaven a second time, and he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Again, the dots are unfolding. There's an offspring to Eve, an offspring to Abraham, and somehow through them all of this damage gets undone. But then the story fast-forwards. This time, another 1,500 years. 1,500, that's a long wait. It's tough to hope that long, especially in something that's so kind of hazy to get your mind around. But this time, God comes to the prophet Isaac, and things are bad, they're bleak. Uh, the last remnants of Israel are about to get punked, right? It's all bad. But then God promises another dot of hope. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So once again, there's going to be an offspring through a woman, and it'll be a son. Who is the son, this woman, this offspring? Fast forward again. 700 more years. That's a lot. We haven't even been around as a country half that time, right? It's a long wait. But then you fast forward and you find this simple Jewish carpenter. He's recently been engaged to this nice local girl. And she now has an unwanted, unexpected teen pregnancy. Right? And, and Joseph's looking at this scene and he's like, listen, I, I know where babies come from. We all do. There's no way this is mine because we haven't done anything. This is from something else. This is from someone else, not me. And so I'm going to break off this engagement. I'm going to put you away quietly. And then I'm going to go do my own life. 
But in that moment where he's very certain that this is just all earthly parameters, there is a dream that comes to him while he's asleep. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet 700 years before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? God with us in the lowliest way in the kindest way, in the most hands-on way. And you see that all those dots connect from Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Joseph and Mary. God is on the move to bring hope where there's hopelessness. See, the offspring that's been promised was the offspring of hope that God always guaranteed would come eventually. In fact, Paul connects these dots just outright blank. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So the gospel is an Old Testament idea. It's a Genesis 12 idea, right? He said, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the guarantee. That's why Jesus comes. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, And to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but rather referring to one, and to your offspring, singular. And who is the singular offspring? It's Christ. So when you go back all the way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, right? What do we see? The serpent has done damage, but her offspring, that is a he, will solve everything. And the her was Mary, the offspring was of Abraham, but the he was Christ. And so, yes, God subjected it, subjected it in, 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 in the sense of futility, but futility for the purpose of hope. And the hope would be that one day God, God would come among us to dwell with us, to teach us himself, to personally indwell us, to then use us to display to the world what true hope is all about. In fact, I close with Romans chapter 15. It says again, speaking through Isaiah, God spoke this. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in, in him will the Gentiles hope. This is talking about the fact that one day God will come in the person of Jesus, and from that we, a bunch of outsiders, would find true hope. Thus, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Oh, words we've already looked at in this whole thing. May he fill you with joy, fill you with peace, right? Believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Maybe you're with us this morning, or you're watching online with us, or sometime this week you're going to watch online. And you go, man, I don't know of joy, peace, and hope like this has articulated. But you go, I, I, I want that. I want to be kindled to, to those things. Well, as I've been sharing, that's only found in the presence of God. That's only found by seeking and, 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 and desiring that presence of God in your life to mirror what you see in the person of Jesus, to say, Jesus, I want to live not simply for you. I want to live like you. I want to follow in your footsteps because I know that in that space, doing those things, I am reconnected to you in the deepest way possible. If that's you today and you want to make that move to following Jesus, you just simply say, Jesus, I know I've been going against the very things that will create joy, peace, and hope. 
and that you offer those very things. That's why you came and lived and died on the cross and rose from the dead to give me a life with you that generates those things in my life for the good of others and your glory. You make that your prayer and your way. Man, we would love to know about that. On our app, there's a title. You can let us know you made that decision. I'll be out in the front. You can let me know. You can let any one of our leaders or staff know. We would love to know that. Tell us that you took that step. For the rest of us that follow Jesus, you know, I know, Jesus, that life is hard. I mean, we have these ideal words, and sometimes they feel distant because life is rough and life is hard. I pray that you will give us the endurance. I pray you will give us the wisdom. I pray you give us the grit and the grace to more press into what you want us to be and what you want us to do, and that we will look to you to guide, to comfort, to aid us in what we do. Thank you for such a great grace, undeserved, but so, so appreciated. We thank you that you came, not high but low, not mighty but weak, and that you came lowly and gentle in heart because that's where we find rest for our souls. May we be like you because you were that for us. We thank you in your good name.